Pastor Mike Stone. Most of my audience would be familiar with what happened in 2019 at the Southern Baptist Convention, Resolution 9. And they've seen the Trojan Horse video series and so forth that kind of used that as a launching point to talk about these issues. Being a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention and now running for president, can you just give me your thoughts on what occurred in 2019 with Resolution 9 and now what's happened over the last two years since then? Mike, when I've discussed that, I've really compared it to something I regularly see in pastoral ministry because I pastor a church where I still do crisis counseling, marriage counseling, uh, rebellious teenager counseling or whatever. And one of the big things you have to do is determine whether or not you're dealing with uh, the root of the problem or a symptom of the problem because a lot of counseling uh, is dealing with symptoms and never getting down to the bottom of the, of the issue. I think that Resolution 9 in the 2019 convention in Birmingham was a symptom. Now, symptoms can be deadly. Uh, an analogy that I use in counseling a lot is compare um, uh, these kind of uh, symptoms to a fever in the body. 102, 103, 104 fever in the body. We're all familiar with that in this COVID situation. Right. That, that is a symptom. But if you don't deal with the symptom, it can kill you. Right. Uh, we've had children in our own ministry to die because of fevers that were not able to be uh, gotten under control. With that analogy in mind, the Resolution 9 that came out of Birmingham is a symptom. That is, it's, it's a big problem in itself, but it's symptomatic and uh, emblematic of what I think are deeper, more fundamental underlying problems. L let me deal with kind of the initial symptom, and let's go to Birmingham 2019. First of all, that, that resolution was bundled together initially with, I think, four or five other resolutions, which were these very obvious, perfunctory kind of organizational resolutions. You pass resolutions on appreciation where you thank the, the host association for their work in providing logistical support for the convention. And by bundling Resolution 9 in with those other resolutions, it, there was the, the idea I think being presented from the platform from the beginning that this is a no-brainer resolution. In the same way that we're going to thank the ushers and in our churches we might thank the piano player and the choir, that this is a no-brainer. That's just a normal order of business. Had it not been for a parliamentary move to, to pull Resolution 9 out of the bundle, it would have been just bundled together right. with all of the rest with no discussion whatsoever. So from the very beginning, that gives the impression that, hey, Southern Baptists, we on the platform, we in the leadership, the, the establishment of the convention are so firmly behind what's in this resolution, we think there's nothing to see here at all. And I think there's a great irony that a resolution that when it first came out and would have been presented in this bundling type situation has turned out to be one of the most, perhaps the most controversial resolution, at least in the modern history of the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. A second problem that I see um, in that is that the Resolutions Committee itself is comprised of a lot of seminary leadership, professors, mm -hmm. faculty, etc. The people that we're counting on as Southern Baptists to be the theological gatekeepers, the ones that you would hope you would put on a committee like that to to see the, the warning signs, the red flags, and say, no, brothers and sisters, th this is problematic theologically mm -hmm. for these reasons. Um, but yet, that's not what happened. In fact, just the opposite happened. 
In fact, when Southern Baptists really began to express their concerns in the aftermath of uh, the Birmingham Convention, rather than getting um, any type of apology or retra retraction, what we got instead through Baptist Press was an explainer. Right. And the idea behind uh, most of these explainer uh, videos and articles that come a lot of times out of our entities is that the reason you're troubled by this is because you don't understand it. Right, right. It's a, it's a condescending kind of attitude. Yeah, even Neil Shenby coming out in favor of Resolution 9. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The idea is the reason that you're opposed to it is you're not as smart as we are. You didn't read it as, uh, as well as we clearly wrote it, mm -hmm. and uh, you don't understand these issues. That, that, that type of, uh, of uh, attitude or approach, I mm -hmm. think, is, uh, is an ongoing problem that we have uh, in the SBC. But I tell you, Mike, another major problem that I saw there in Birmingham was the, uh, the silence of key national leaders mm. who you and I know for a fact because of other conversations were aware that this resolution was not only going to be presented, but that there was going to be an effort to, to remove it from that bundle and place it on the floor for debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of these leaders are working behind the scenes uh, giving ideas and suggestions, but they're not willing to step forward to a microphone and put their name on it and provide leadership in that crisis moment when the convention needs that kind of leadership. Right. I'm grateful for people who have name recognition and influence, but I, I've, I firmly believe that influence is of no value if you're not willing to use it when it matters. Right. In the moment when it mattered, most of our leaders, with the exception of uh, doctors Tom Askell and Tom Buck, but in terms of our national entity leadership, prominent pastors across the SBC, uh, there was radio silence. Mm -hmm. And then once the issue has been voted on and, um, uh, and the matter's no longer on the floor, so to speak, mm. from the safety of Monday morning quarterbacking, they begin to speak with great precision and confidence about why this was so uh, dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm grateful, for example, for the statement that came more recently out of the Council of Seminary Presidents. I agree with the statement itself on paper, but I do have to ask, where were you in that moment when you could have prevented the Southern Baptist Convention from adopting a formal resolution expressing agreement that critical race theory was a helpful analytical tool to do gospel ministry? Mm -hmm. So. That, that is, uh, I'm going back to the idea that Resolution 9 was symptomatic. Mm. It's symptomatic of uh, people who have influence and position, but are, they want to play it safe, middle of the road, and are not willing to use their uh, influence in those moments mm -hmm. when it matters the most. Right. And where you would see critical race theory, mm -hmm. you know, here it is in the Southern Baptist Convention, but at the same time, it was in almost every other affinity outside of the church mm -hmm. beginning to come in when people had no idea even what it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, here we are in 2021, but we're talking about the middle of 2019. Uh, Sovereign and our audience would know we've been addressing these issues since 2017, trying to warn. Yeah. But here it is all across every single professional sports group, corporate groups, uh, other faith-based groups, that it's all coming in at the same time. How in the world... Did this come into the Southern Baptist mm -hmm. Convention? How was this even mentioned? Well, it seems to me, perhaps even by some intentionality, mm. uh, 
I'm troubled when I see what is supposed to be and is the largest evangelical denomination or convention of churches on the North American continent. Right. Is dealing with these social issues, social constructs, social theories in a way that sounds more like Nike, the NFL, uh, the DNC, right. uh, than what Jude would describe as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a problem uh, in and of itself. Go, go back to what you were mentioning that even though critical race theory and the broader scope of critical theory, cultural Marxism, these things were, were in the, th- the, the bloodstream of thought, so to speak, of, of many people in America. The, these terms were not known to the average messenger to the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, uh, many are still asking today to to define critical race theory. We don't even know what it is. And yet there was a desire to put a a resolution out in front of the Southern Baptist Convention on an an issue that the messengers did not even themselves understand. Right, right. So then you have critical race theory. There's two aspects, critical race theory and intersectionality. And as we've said before, critical race theory destroys. It destroys the mm-hmm. pillars, the foundations of whatever entity it comes into. And then intersectionality takes up the rubble of what's been destroyed right. and builds Rebuild. it back up upside down. Mm-hmm. In other words, against the current hierarchy. And does it seem as if there's that kind of, I don't want to say attempt, but that sort of drift that's happening right now within the Southern Baptist Convention? Or is it even a drift? I certainly believe that there is a drift. I think it's a drift to the left. And when you talk about left versus right, liberal versus conservative, those terms can all become very relative. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw one of our entity heads in an interview with Baptist Press mm. stated that any claim that there was a leftward or liberal drift in the SBC was so irresponsible that it could hardly be taken seriously. Mm. And yet when I see and when I hear and read some of the things that are coming out of our seminaries, for example, um, I have to say that's a drift. That's a change. It's either a change to the right or a change to the left. Right. For, for example, if a seminary professor says that, you, that a group of white men, and this was, this was very stated in a very well-known way, highly publicized way by a seminary professor within the Southern Baptist Convention, that if all you have are a group of, is a group of white men, you have a misinterpreted Bible. I've, I've had people ask me, uh, Pastor Mike, is that critical race theory? Is that intersectionality, this sort of uh, identity-based hermeneutics, uh, standpoint hermeneutics, is, is that critical race theory and intersectionality? And um, Mike, for the most part, I answer it by saying it is. It shows the influence of these fallen ideologies, mm-hmm. but, but that's still not the best question. The best and the most fundamental question that Southern Baptists need to be asking is not are these things evidence of CRT and intersectionality, but is that what the Bible teaches? Mm-hmm. For example, let's just take this one issue that a group of white men studying the Bible together cannot come up with a proper interpretation of a text that you are by definition going to have a misinterpreted Bible. Um, that's not what Jesus taught. Right. Jesus taught that when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Right. Jesus in His high priestly prayer 
prayed, Father, sanctify them, talking about those disciples there with Him and all who would come to believe in Him through their witness, which is you and me and all other believers. Mm. Sanctify them with the truth. Your Word is truth. Not somebody else's opinion of your Word, not some uh, multi-ethnic, multi-background uh, people speaking in their own personal lived experiences into the truth. Uh, I believe the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 8 that when someone is saved, they receive the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 9. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not of Christ. That means that every believer has living inside of them. Mm. The ultimate author of the text, the one who Jesus said would illumine the text mm -hmm. and teach you, guide you into all truth. And so when someone says that uh, a, a mono-ethnic group of believers cannot come to a proper interpretation of the text unless they have people from outside their identity, outside their uh, intersectional attributes, so speaking into that. I do think it represents CRT and intersectionality, but more fundamentally, it just doesn't represent the teachings of our Savior and what the Apostle Paul would call the whole counsel of God. And so you would, you would see this actually happening with diversity, inclusion, and equity being required now mm -hmm. uh, legislatively through the Biden-Harris administration. And with this concept, with just even outside of Christianity, that, look, um, if you have a headache or I have a headache and we want to go to a neurologist and find out, you know, what's going on, um, now it's being within health equity and within uh, medical practice, the, the thought that, well, you need to not make sure that you're not just getting the white Anglo perspective, the colonized perspective yeah, yeah. of medicine, that you need to make sure that you're getting it from each one of the different ethnic um, um, affinities that would give you a different perspective that might be different, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that it's not true. That same concept is being now used um, to look at scriptural inter interpretation, we would call exegesis. Right. Um, and within that hermeneutic approach, this whole concept that it almost destroys the, the understanding of the God-breathed Theopneustos scripture. Absolutely. And that there's no way that it can be God-breathed in that sense unless it's breathed through each one of the different ethnicities equally. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you're deconstructing the entire past that Correct. we've had. And, and ultimately, what that means is that no body of believers, no individual or body of believers living at any point in time in human history right. has ever had a full understanding of biblical truth or ever could have an understanding of biblical truth. Right. The professor I referenced earlier said that not only uh, this group of white men is going to have a misinterpreted Bible, but I need, I need women you know, speaking in ways that uh, my maleness is keeping me from interpreting the text. Right. I need non-whites speaking into this in ways that my whiteness is preventing me from, from seeing the text. I need people to read people from other centuries uh, who lived in different time periods. Well, the, the reality is if, if, if God's people living in the 21st century cannot understand Bible truth without the benefit of people who lived in the 19th century. And I'm all in favor of, of, of reading and studying and, or the systematic theology, church history, etc., from which we can learn. But if I, have to, uh, if I have to have their opinion of the text to get a proper understanding today, then perhaps somebody who's going to be alive 100 years from now uh, is going to have some insight into the text that nobody else has ever seen before. Mm -hmm. So living here in this culture, I'm, uh, I don't have at my availability at the insight, the, the uh, exegetical insight of somebody who hasn't even been born yet. Mm. 
if ethnic background gives some specific and unique insight into the text, well, the, the uh, International Mission Board is constantly telling us and rightly telling us about the existence of unengaged, unreached people groups, mm. that their ethnicities who've yet to even hear the gospel, which is, a, which is an evangelistic, uh, should be an evangelistic priority for us. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm certainly not criticizing the emphasis on that, but w we acknowledge the presence of yet unreached ethnic people groups. Right who apparently have some insight into the text that we can't get a proper exegetical uh, understanding of without their insight, they're yet to be even engaged with the gospel, let alone be discipled to the point that they could help speak this interpretive truth so, back, back into us. So nobody ultimately under that system has right. access to the truth. Mm -hmm. This is why I think if you follow it to its yeah. logical extreme, and there may be some watch this and say, well, that, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. Well. No, it only sounds absurd because it takes some period of time to get to that point. But that's right. where this road leads. Right. It leads all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Indeed hath God said. It mm. is ultimately a subtle but very real um, undermining of the authority of the Word of God. Mm. Let, me, let me just say, I was raised in a Pentecostal denomination. I thank God for my parents. That church embraced the fundamentals of the faith, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a boy, in a Sunday night service, I I'd had heard the gospel really all my life. I don't remember the first time that I heard the gospel. But uh, when I was a young boy, um, God opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel, and I repented unto salvation, and I, and I was saved. So I was saved in a church that, that believed the fundamentals of the faith. Right. But they simultaneously believed in extra-biblical revelation. They would also affirm the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that God used in my own personal Bible study as a, as a high school student was to just look at the logical uh, inconsistency with claiming that God is giving new revelation through prophecies, visions, dreams, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. or just God told me last night whatever form that extra-biblical revelation takes, it is logically inconsistent to embrace that and say you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the closing of the canon. So as a young boy, I, I had to deal with, and I didn't even understand all these terms at the time, but I've already dealt with a, uh, a religious system or thinking that says we affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. <laughs> right. Exclamation point, end of discussion. And yet... But we also believe that we need these outside influences speaking back into... Analytical tools. Text. Yes. Yes. And uh, I, I preached at a conference a few months ago, and I uh, labeled my message, the Bible, my analytical tool. Mm. I've got an analytical tool that can help me understand everything about life and practice and godliness, and it's the Bible. I, I was sharing with a friend recently that... The challenges that I have with CRT, intersectionality, and these uh, other forms of, of cultural Marxism that are in, infecting the, the, the church is not that they're extra-biblical. We use extra-biblical helps and aids all the time. Reading from a commentary, availing ourselves of some noted uh, faithful preacher of God's Word, that, that brother has taught on that text, maybe that I'm going to be preaching on that Sunday. I avail myself of those extra-biblical tools all the time. Right. But these philosophies are unbiblical. They are contra-biblical tools. They cannot coexist and be useful 
mm. to one another. I find them to be at absolute odds with each other. Mm. A word was used by you in an interview the other day, liberal. Can, can you kind of define for me what you meant by liberal uh, yeah. when referring to other leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention or within uh, evangelical Christianity itself, and how maybe you would look at that, using that word um, mm. is maybe not necessarily the, the, the best descriptive about what's going on, right. uh, actually, that, that is problematic within evangelicalism. Well, I have taught my congregation here. I'm, I'm about to celebrate my 25th anniversary on staff here, most of that as the senior pastor. And I regularly teach them that anytime you have um, a, a cultural or theological war that's going on, a battle that's going on, the first battle in that long-term war is a battle for the dictionary. Mm. It's a battle for the definition of terms. So mm -hmm. uh, let me address this generally, and I want to come back specifically to your question. Okay. Generally what happens in those first rounds of the redefinition of terms is it allows people to waffle. It allows them to embrace compromise even if they don't realize that they have. Right. Because when you've relabeled, retitled, and re-identified everything, redefined it, you can embrace a label while denying or not holding to all of the tenets of belief that that label used to represent. Right. Simultaneously, you can embrace all the tenets of a certain belief system while denying the label. Mm. This is how, for example, you can have a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention declare that a, a, a white brother say, I am a racist and I'll be a racist, struggle with white supremacy till I die and receive my glorified body. Mm -hmm. um, but go on record that, that he rejects critical race theory and intersectionality. Mm -hmm. It's because of a redefinition of terms. I, I think that's subtle. It doesn't have to be intentional or even conscious, but it's, it's real just the same. Right. So in the very same way, you have words like conservative, moderate, liberal. Those are, those are as relative a terms as contemporary versus traditional music mm. in our churches. Right. I was asked recently, are you a fundamentalist? I said, well, I can't answer that question because I don't know how you define that term. Right. Um, so the definition of terms is very, very important, is, is the general response to that question. Mm. But I was asked in an interview, basically, um, you know, do you think that there is liberalism in the Southern Baptist Convention? Is there a leftward drift? Not if you define liberalism just in terms of uh, orthodoxy or the fundamentals of the faith. Right. I do not personally know of any leader or pastor currently involved in the Southern Baptist Convention that would deny the virgin birth, the substitutionary right. atonement of Christ. Right. There are arguments about the extent of it and you know, subtle nuances of that, but I don't know a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention that would deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, right. the inerrancy of the Word of God. And uh, we should be thankful for that, but at the same time, uh, liberalism or moves to the left can happen in more subtle and I think more scheming ways. Um, for example, when you have the, the leader of one of our entities who says, uh, I wouldn't go to a homosexual wedding, but I would go to the reception or the shower. That is some, some type of celebration before or after the actual so-called nuptials right. that is celebrating that which God calls an abomination. Mm. Um, that is a departure. Mm. from where Southern Baptists have stood, at least for the last 30, 35 years, since the conservative resurgence. 
I don't think that's a shift or a drift to the right. right. I think it's a shift to the left. And when you have uh, leaders who allow these things to be perpetuated and, and taught, I definitely think that there is a drifting away from a practice of relying on the sufficiency and the authority of God's Word. Mm. You know, Mike, when I think back many years ago, um, you know, when I left Catholicism, I came into the Southern Baptist Convention, and it seemed like if you were to, to use the, you know, describe the Southern Baptist Convention to anyone that was not in it, mm-hmm. they would say, oh, those are the guys that are going to try to make sure that they get you converted that they want to make sure that they get you born again. So they're going to evangelize you, proselytize you. It seems like that's kind of become something that's not been always at the forefront um, with the Southern Baptist Convention. It seems like the internal squabbles Mm -hmm. and the squabbles over social justice and as well even a, a leftward political bent in terms of trying to make sure that we redefine um, those folks within, I would say, what is it, about 14 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention? Yeah, officially. Yeah, officially. <laughs> so, so when we look at that, we're looking at something, an entity that's the size of a small country, mm-hmm. or a medium-sized country, I should say. And it seems that if there is an intent to introduce something that is disguised to some extent as a theological move, but is really a political move, and that that has become the big talked-about um, within Sunday school, within your Sunday morning services, within Wednesday nights, within uh, our, our programs for our children, within parachurch ministries that are um, associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, as opposed to, again, what I remember, which was evangelism, right. saving souls. And I met my wife, who's Chinese, and I'm a half Cuban guy, um, you know, in the Southern Baptist Church. And I remember it being multi-ethnic. Right. And that was never a thing. Right. It's just that we all had a unity and purpose. Mm-hmm. Do you see that, Mike, as, as something that is starting to become lost? And then how do we get that back? Yes, great question. I would cite just by way of a quick uh, anecdote. When we went to Birmingham in 2019, we had a wonderful theme for that year's annual meeting, Gospel Above All. But I don't think there were very many people who left Birmingham or Southern Baptists who were maybe not able to be in Birmingham who were watching it through social media and uh, traditional media, hearing reports of a lot of the things that happened in Birmingham. Uh, I do not think that the message coming out of that annual meeting was the gospel above all because we're, we're so sidetracked and focused on a lot of different things. Um, our church here at Emmanuel, we have, we have seen God's blessings through just faithful evangelism. We right. don't believe in pragmatism and you know slick gimmicks, man-centered presentations, but here in a very small town, uh, we have a hot heart to see lost people come to faith in Christ. Mm. In the 25 years that I've been here, we've averaged around 63 baptisms a year, which that's, uh, that's about the only statistic that we have to, to, to give our best idea to measure uh, the evangelistic fruitfulness of a church. Mm. I remember going to knock on doors. We uh, especially pre-COVID, we would go out and, you know, old-fashioned door knocking and visitation and uh, knocked on the door of a Presbyterian brother who I would later in that encounter, I'd never met him before, but would subsequently find him to be a devout uh, brother in Christ who was attending the Presbyterian church uh, here. And we later joked about the fact that uh, 
if we would enlarge our baptistry uh, or if they would enlarge their baptistry, he said, I could go preach there sometime or if we would shrink ours, he would right. come and be a member here. Sure. But just good natured uh, conversation between the two of us. But when I first met him was when my visitation partner and I knocked on his door and we engaged in brief conversation and, uh, and I talked to him about his salvation. And he, he said, yes, I... I understand that you folks at Emmanuel are trying to get all the Presbyterians saved. And uh, I, I felt it was a little tongue-in-cheek, but I just, I just went with it. I said, yes, sir, we absolutely are. <laughs> and we're trying to get all the Baptists saved. And we'd love to see all the Methodists <laughs> saved and all the Lutherans right. saved uh, because this is our goal. As I just shared with him, the, the goal is not whether or not you're Baptist or versus Presbyterian. Right. Do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? That, that's the preeminent uh, issue. And uh, I think that we have very much gotten sidetracked, mm -hmm. not just in very recent years, but over the last several decades. In fact, um, uh, I'm not numbers driven as a pastor, but, but numbers can tell you some things. We're seeing the lowest number of baptisms. That's really your question, the hot heart for evangelism. We're seeing right. the lowest number of baptisms across the Southern Baptist Convention since 1939. Hmm. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president and World War II had not yet formally touched the United States of America. Right. When we had, the last time we had this low number of baptisms. And obviously now in 2021, we've got literally billions more dollars that are coming through the collective offering plates of Southern Baptist churches. Right. We've got more churches. We've got more people. We, we obviously have greater technology. Hmm. We've got exponentially more at our disposal and we're seeing the same kind of evangelistic fruit uh, that we had in the days right before World War II. Mm. Now I think, there are, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I want to be clear that in my theology the blame cannot be ultimately laid at any uh, national leader or convention of churches. It ultimately comes down to the individual Christian and their obligation to obey the Great Commission mandate of the Lord Jesus. So rather than looking to Nashville or a state convention and saying, why aren't you guys uh, reaching more people? I need to be asking, when was the last time that I intentionally went out and engaged in a, uh, an evangelistic, soul-winning conversation with someone that's not converted? Mm. That does not downplay, however, the strategic role that leaders play. If God's people would faithfully walk in obedience without the gift of a pastor or a teacher... Uh, the New Testament describes that as a gift right. that God has given to the church. If all believers would just do everything in faith and practice that they were supposed to without God-ordained leadership speaking into their life, uh, then uh, I'd be out of a job. Mm, right. And uh, so there is a real strategic role for leadership, um, whether that's the president of the convention, national entity leaderships, and the pastor speaking in a local church. I I'm concerned that in the last several years, we have started calling everything under the sun a gospel issue. Hmm. And when everything is a gospel issue, ultimately nothing is a gospel issue. Right. The word gospel has become too much of an adjective for Southern Baptists. Hmm. That's a gospel issue. Oh, we need to address this because that's a gospel issue. We need to spend some time looking into this. Maybe we need a commission or uh, some kind of resolution to address that. That's a gospel issue. Meanwhile, the gospel, insofar as it references a noun right. describing a body of truth, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you will repent by grace through faith, you can be saved and reconciled to God. 
the, the more that we have made the word gospel an adjective that describes a whole bunch of things, the less we're seeing effective fruitfulness from making the gospel that noun that describes the good news of salvation right. through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And um, we're getting sidetracked on a lot of different things, things that uh, could use our attention. I'm not saying that all of those things don't need to be uh, addressed. But social justice is one of those things that we've started calling a gospel issue. The idea is that we, we've lost our testimony before a lost world, and so we've got to spend uh, a lot of time repairing our reputation, etc. I do think there are things that an individual believer can do or a church or a convention can do that does damage a reputation. But, but Paul said that the power of God unto salvation is the gospel. Right. And you don't have to look any further than the well-loved story of Jonah preaching to Nineveh to understand that when he went through and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be, uh, will be destroyed, Im implicit in that is God's giving you 40 days to repent. And that's exactly what happened in Nineveh. Right. And it happened through the Bible proclamation of a messenger who would have had a terrible reputation with the Ninevites. Mm. And they had a terrible reputation with him. Mm -hmm. But the power of God unto salvation is in the gospel itself. So when we're spending a lot of time, effort, energy, and resources trying to fix some gospel issues so that we think we'll then have a platform to go out and share the gospel, we end up spending all of our time trying to do these other things and less time actually sharing the gospel. And we're seeing less and less fruitfulness from that across the churches of the SBC. And you would say, you know, here in this area in southeast Georgia, um, we were having dinner last night and I was talking about how uh, over the last many years, myself and my, my organizations have led tours to London. Mm -hmm. And at the, the cemetery, the burial ground that's across from Charles and John Wesley's church, yeah. where they are buried, where their mother is buried, where Bunyan from Pilgrim's Progress is, is buried. Isaac Watts is buried there, the same graveyard. And the amount of evangelistic, evangelistic efforts that came out from that church were remarkable all over the world. And I would obviously have some issues theologically with them right. in, in regards to soteriological issues. But that also carried on to America and had a great impact here in this area. Is that right? Absolutely. We're about 45 or 50 minutes away from coastal Georgia, the city of Brunswick, St. Simons Island, and one of the uh, largest United Methodist Conference centers is there. Uh, it would be uh, the Methodist version of, of Ridgecrest or the old Glorietta Conference centers that we have enjoyed as Southern Baptists. Um, and it's called Epworth by the Sea. It's named after Epworth, which was the right. European home uh, of the Wesleys. And uh, that campground is there, and there's a museum there uh, that, the, that the United Methodist Church oversees, the curator that's there, to celebrate the incredible impact that the Wesleys had in this part of America. Right. Uh, uh, literally preaching in, in this very part of our country. They were... Uh, preaching repentance and faith in Christ. And like you, I would have some differences with uh, some of the things that they would preach. But, but, but what they did preach is that Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and you need to repent and believe the gospel right. and be saved. And one of the things that I was on my mind just this past, uh, the last summer that we took our, our student camp 
uh, is held at that conference center, and I toured that museum. And one of the things that I couldn't help but think about, Mike, was that you look at the demise of practically every mainline denomination mm -hmm. in the United States of America. And the Southern Baptist Convention is not exempt right. or immune from that. Mm. And uh, there was a day when the United Methodist Church was hot-hearted for souls. I have a pastor friend who used to pastor up in North Georgia, and right around the corner from his church is the Sam Jones United uh, uh, Sam Jones Memorial United right. Methodist Church. It's right. a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. So I got to study who was Sam Jones. He was a fiery Methodist uh, uh, revivalist. Right. And here in Georgia, he became known for what in Georgia we call quitting meetings. And of course, in Georgia, we speak a different language, a subset of the English language. We drop our G's from I-N-G words. So nice. cultured listeners would call them quitting meetings. Yes. Uh, but uh, they called them quitting meetings. It's because he would preach with such fervency about holiness, sanctification, and obedience to the commandments of God that after their public invitations, people would give testimony to the things the Holy Spirit had convicted them about, things that they were quitting. Right. And so one man would testify, I'm quitting drinking. I've, I've been doing, uh, you know, I've been unfaithful to my wife and I'm, I'm quitting pursuing that lifestyle. I'm quitting cussing. I'm quitting all of these things. And so Sam Jones's uh, meetings became known as quitting right. meetings. There was a time that this part of the country was aflame wow. with that great move of God. And I thank God for it. Mm. Meanwhile, we're living in a day now where one of the conversations in the United Methodist movement is, are we going to allow local congregations to buy the property from us if they don't agree with our position on the ordination of open homosexuals? Right. And so as I s stood last summer in the Wesley Museum, I thought, we're not exempt from that. Now, I don't think that we're on the verge of embracing full-blown homosexuality. We're, we're, we're not on the verge of that in the Southern Baptist Convention. But it's just a reminder, we're not exempt from it. Right. There's a second part of that that I would mention, and that is that my, my desire and my prayer, seeking to provide some leadership to the SBC, is not about saving the SBC. Because God has been doing a sovereign work through the proclamation of the gospel long before the Southern Baptist Convention ever came along. God doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention to survive. He is well able to raise up rocks to cry out right. and, and declare His praise. The heavens themselves declare mm. the glory of God. Right. God does not need us. But Mike, what I'm praying for in my own heart and life, as a pastor of this church, as a, as a father to four children, and whatever level of leadership and platform of influence that God would give me, I want to cry out for a wave of revival and renewal that would result in God's people getting right with Him. And yes, an obvious overflow from that is that we will be more intentional in sharing the gospel and seeing lost people come to faith in Christ. Right. Uh, when, when David repented of his sin so beautifully in Psalm 51, he, he, he gets his cleansing, he offers his confession and says, Then will I teach transgressors your ways. So my desire is not to try to save the Southern Baptist Convention, but that, but that we would put ourselves in a position of usefulness, that when God looks uh, at North America and the world and is looking for a tool, is looking for a people 
that He would in His own sovereign will choose to use to reach the lost. That He would say, I'm going to use those people because they're sold out, they're, they're committed uh, to reaching the lost. And that's very countercultural mm. in many ways because it seems as if right now, and it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't want to just pick on them, sure. um, but also within PCA, within EV Free, within so many other denominations, there's this move that seems to be in step with what the rest of the nation, what the rest of the world is currently doing. Right. And wouldn't it always be the case, most likely, that, you know, in, unless you're someone from a very different theological perspective, that we who embrace the pure and true gospel would be consistently countercultural. Yes. That we would go against the world. Yes, and I actually find a warning in the teachings of the Savior that we should beware. We should be concerned. Yeah. When unregenerate people are speaking well of us. Yeah. Not long after I became the chairman of the uh, Southern Baptist Executive Committee, um, a, a nationally prominent leader in the SBC said, Mike, we've got to continue moving in this direction. And he referenced an article that had come out in a major national newspaper literally the day before. Mm. And he said, this is the first time that that paper has had something positive to say about the Southern Baptist Convention in decades, if, if not perhaps ever. That, that they've never looked at this. Isn't that wonderful? I said, no. No, it's not. Uh, not in the sense of if, if that's your goal and right. that's your, your standard that you've been biblically faithful. Obviously, any of us would like to have somebody say something nice about us than right. say something unkind about us. Right. But, but a person who the Bible says, being naturally minded, cannot, not will not, right, right. Not, not just doesn't want to, cannot discern the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. When the approval of the world of the secular media becomes some kind of standard that we have arrived or we're moving in the right direction. I think we're moving in the wrong direction. Again, as I said, I see a warning in the Scripture that we should beware. We should sit up. We should hear bells going off when ungodly, unregenerate, secular society is praising us for things that we're doing. Right. Also along with that, though, and this is, uh, this is something that it, I think that you can see across the board is every single time that we have the discussion of of social justice within the church, along with it, those proponents for mm -hmm. those concepts, along with it always is accompanied the idea of being against a nationalism. And I don't mean that in a fascistic sense at all. I mean that in the sense of embracing love of country mm -hmm. along with love of God. And it's as if that to them is antithetical. Although I would say that every single time that you really position yourself against national sovereignty, what you're really advocating for is supranationalism. Yes. So the absence of one just means the greater of the other. Mm -hmm. But is that something as well that you've seen? And in, in, in what is your take on, on that controversy? Yeah, I, I find a lot of members of my church who are really put off by some of the conversations and comments we hear from national leaders across evangelicalism generally and even right. the Southern Baptist Convention uh, specifically. Uh, social media today has made uh, these kind of statements, whether it's uh, members of my church who follow people on Twitter or they see 
links to articles on Facebook or Instagram, um, these sorts of things. That information is now much more readily available to the average Baptist church member in the pew or in the chair, uh, depending on how your sanctuary is set up. Right. So I regularly have members of my church come up to me and they say, it seems, Pastor, as if, if, if you love Jesus, first, foremost, preeminently, but are not afraid to say, I love God and I love my country. It seems we've got national leaders who say that I'm something called a Christian nationalist. Pastor, what is that? Because right. I can tell from the context that it's not meant as a compliment. Right. Uh, and I would be the first to say that as I would define what is called Christian nationalism, uh, we get back to the definition of terms, mm -hmm. uh, I would say that if somebody is intermarrying or intermingling that you can't be a Christian unless you're an American, right. uh, then, then obviously I would... Or vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> obviously I would renounce that. Right. But my, I, don't, I don't know anybody that's saying that. Right. And so for, first of all, it's a straw man. Mm -hmm. Secondly, when I read the New Testament, I hear the apostles, I read the apostles say things like, fear God, love the brotherhood, and honor the king. Right. How could I possibly honor the king while renouncing and seeking to undermine and denigrate everything about that kingdom? Right. God is the one who set up nations and borders and boundaries. Th those things are, are, um, are issues of God's own sovereign rule over people. Mm -hmm. And we know that Daniel said that God is the one who raises up kings and God is the one who takes down kings. I personally see no conflict whatsoever in saying I love God supremely. Mm -hmm. I am first and foremost a Christian. Right. But am I, in the words of Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American? Yes. If you um, properly define the word pride, not talking about a sinful pride, but just a sense of fulfillment and gratitude, my heart is full of gratitude that God let me be born in a place that is free, in a place uh, uh, that has an economic system where uh, I'm only limited by my own willingness to go out there and get with it and, uh, and work a job and move up. I see no conflict whatsoever in a love of God and a love of country. I, I said in a sermon to our church recently that I, that's not because I'm an American. I think that every Christian living in every place ought to pray for and be thankful for the place that God has given them. Uh, now, God is not an American, but I am. Right. And I'm glad to be one. Yeah. And uh, a lot of what's happening is really kind of a deconstruction of our, of, our own, right. of our own history. That's correct, yes. But do we have sins in our national past? Absolutely. But get a ticket, join the club, and stand in line. Right. So does every other nation, including the nation that is God's chosen people, the apple of His eye. Right. On multiple occasions in the New Testament, He tells His prophets, step back, I'm going to destroy them all and start over. Right. So do we have national sins in our past? Of course. So you can view national sins of the past in, in one of two ways, generally speaking. You can either look at them in the past and say, we're horrible, we're wicked, we're awful, we're no better than any other people anywhere else. Or you can look at those sins of the past and say, by God's grace, under this system, Judeo-Christian laws, Judeo-Christian ethics, 
America being a lighthouse for the gospel yes. has been able to see tremendous progress in these particular areas. And it is for that that we are thankful. Not thankful for the sins, not thankful for, the, uh, uh, for atrocities, thankful for how God has moved right. through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of His Spirit. I think that any place in the world where God's people are, they ought to be thankful to God and they ought to seek to be good citizens. Mm. And um, if that's Christian nationalism, if right. that's Christian nationalism, I would plead guilty. Mm. But that's not what we're being accused of. We're accused of loving America even more than loving Jesus. Right. And uh, I find that to be... Uh, um, that's an untenable accusation. Or, or even as if it's the, the accusation is, is that we are for the forced conversion of, of, of others um, sure. the, against their volitional you know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. abilities. And that is never something. That is not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is, is not uh, an insistence of as we have remember many times we can repeat is you know a mind convinced against its wills of the same opinion still right, right and that to us solves nothing that just means that you're going to have a burgeoning population which is looking for vengeance someday mm -hmm. you know if you will and so i i look at this and i and i i wonder what the purposes are and i think they're pretty clear and that's that the christian influence though over this nation has been unmistakable. Mm -hmm. And then this nation and how it's been used as one of the greatest mission-creating forces in the world through the Southern Baptist Convention as well Absolutely. as others. Absolutely. There's no way of denying that either. One of the greatest exports that this country has ever sent to foreign soil is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yep. And why would Satan, our eternal adversary, uh, infernal adversary. Why would he have some desire to undercut, undermine, and deconstruct the evangelical church in America? Well, I just gave the answer. Hmm. The American church has been, at least in modern history, one of the largest exporters of the gospel to the nations of the world. Now we're beginning to see Christian groups from other nations sending missionaries to the United States That's of America. Right. And I'm, I'm grateful for their work. I'm grateful for their influence. If they're coming from other countries pre preaching a, a faithful gospel, I say hallelujah, let's join hands and try to, try to win right. the, this continent for Christ. That's right. But, but America has um, been a lighthouse for the gospel. We talk about there being churches on every corner, and that's certainly true here in the South. Can that create a cultural Christianity? Uh, absolutely it can. But that's because of uh, uh, the, the way that we are responding on our end. The problem's not with America. The problem's not with the gospel. Right. With that, though, within the Southern Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know if my audience knows, but you are currently um, you know, ready for nomination with, to become the president of the, or to be nominated to, to possibly become the, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But in the SBC... It seems as if there's been a drift within our educational institutions, uh, most notably among our seminaries, to where a lot of the men that 
we are creating uh, as pastors that are coming out of our, our seminaries. Um, upon taking roles within churches across the SBC, it seems like the intention is to be more of a community organizer mm -hmm. in many instances as opposed to a pastor. I'm not saying that's with all, but it seems like that seems to be a trend now. Yeah, I'm going to win my city or we're going to transform this city. Tell me what you mean by that. We're going to be a blessing to the city. Well, these are the mantras that you hear. These are, these are the hashtags. These are the bylines that you can even see on you know, a lot of church websites. And um, you can go to conferences, whether that's a video seminar or whatever. And one of the, one of the questions that's asked, and of course I'm consolidating a lot of different right, questions right. Into, into this statement. Um, but if your church went away, would your city notice? Are you a blessing to the city? Are you impacting the culture and the climate uh, within your community? And of course, properly understood and defined, those are, those are not bad things to right. do. Uh, our church here is the largest church in this uh, community and, and frankly in this region. Uh, we've got our hands missionally in a lot of different things from uh, FCA to Benevolence Ministries, all kind of things like that. And I believe that our community would, would uh, feel the impact of our absence if our church were to go away. Right. But we're wanting to impact our community with the gospel, not to come in and bring about cultural and societal change. And this is where I see the influence of social justice, this progressive woke movement that is coming into the Southern Baptist Convention. And by the way, months ago I would have said infiltrating the Southern Baptist Convention. But the word infiltrate means it's kind of coming in and you don't know it. I don't think it's an infiltration. I think it's, there's an opening of the door and saying, come, come on in. Right. But you think about how Jesus brought about change. He brought it about at the level of the heart. In Luke 19.10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He did not say, I've come to seek and save the culture. Mm -hmm. I've come to seek and bring about systemic change in this community. He came in and he preached, as did his forerunner before him, repent right. for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think about uh, the well-known story of Jesus riding triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem the, in the days immediately prior to His crucifixion. Mike, when they thought that He was coming to bring about systemic, cultural, societal, governmental overthrow, to turn everything upside down, what was their response? Hail, no. King of the Jews. Yep. Hosanna. Glory to the Son of David. Blessed That's is He right. who comes in the name of the Lord. That's right. But before that day was over, Jesus made a statement about if He, the Son of Man, would be lifted up from the earth, yeah. He would draw all men unto Himself. Bible students know that when He talks about in that context of being lifted up, that's not talking about worship, lifting Him up in worship. The, the text clearly says He was talking about being lifted up to die on the cross. Mm. That the, the, the answer to your problem, the, the remedy to the real issue that you have is not me bringing Caesar down. Right. It's me being lifted up on the cross. Right. When he said that, the crowd that was yelling, Hosanna, glory to the son of David, starts yelling, give us Barabbas. I mean, by the end of the week, they're, they're yelling, give us Barabbas. Right. Away with him, let him be crucified. When Jesus sat in the temple reading from the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord's upon me, etc., the brokenness and the, the, uh, 
the, the captivity that he came to bring liberation from was not the captivity of Roman oppression. Had he wanted to do that, he could have done that. He was God come in the flesh. That's not the captivity that Jesus came to free us from. Right. He came to free us from the captivity and the bondage of sin, death, hell, judgment, and the wrath of God. And uh, what I see happening with a lot of churches that are just focusing on being good and we've got to impact our community, reach the community, they're wanting to bring about some societal big picture change, but not doing it at that level of, of, of sharing the gospel one person at a time, seeing lost people saved. And uh, if there's a denial of that, Mike, the statistics don't bear that out. Right. We've got more and more churches, fewer and fewer baptisms. The more we talk about bringing about change to culture and society, the less God is using us to bring about change of individual hearts who are perishing in their sin, lost and on their way to hell, without someone taking the gospel to them. Well, Mike, if you were the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, what would be some of the things that you would initiate? Well, we've been talking a lot about evangelism. That's one of the things that I would try to do, certainly at our annual meeting level, uh, is to try to keep the agenda as clear as possible from all of these other issues because the one thing that brings Southern Baptists together is what our founders called our one sacred effort. I don't care what soteriological stripe you come from as a Southern Baptist. We are, I think we would be in unanimous agreement that people without a personal relationship with Jesus are lost and they need to hear the gospel. And we need to pray that God would open their eyes, unstop their ears, soften their hearts, and they would be saved. Mm. So I'd love to call the Southern Baptist Convention uh, to a very intentional evangelistic focus. One of the few things we have right now along those lines is the Who's Your One initiative which is a strong appeal to personal evangelism, that everybody would identify one person in their life that's lost and seek to win them uh, to Christ. My goal would be to call the churches of the convention to a wave revival, to take about an eight-week period, maybe a ten-week period, uh, most likely in the spring, and uh, partner together with our North American Mission Board, which is the entity that is charged with handling evangelism uh, for the churches of the convention, and uh, to partner together with them through and provide resources and um, um, branding of this from a promotional perspective, but challenge every church that will. will. Will each of them do it? No. But more will if we challenge them to than if we don't. To challenge each of our 47,000 churches that somewhere in that window of time mm. to have an intentional, an intentional evangelistic focus. And I know because of the methodologies, the schedules, and even some of the convictions of, of individual autonomous churches, that would take on a different flavor and characteristic in each church. That would be under the leadership of that local church pastor and the leaders in that church. Uh, one church may say, we want to have a five-day tent revival. Another pastor may say, he may say, no, I, I, I'm really into the regulative principle of worship. I don't see tent revivals in the Bible, but I'm going to preach a a straightforward salvation message through the Romans Road or John 3.16 or whatever, bring all your lost friends on such and such a day. Right. And in the context of our normal worship service, we're going to be about reaching those that are lost. So one thing that I would desire to do is to really promote uh, a hot heart for evangelism. Uh, I believe that's something the Southern Baptist Convention desperately, desperately, desperately needs. The second thing, and we've already alluded to it, is uh, to champion the sufficiency of Scripture. Right. 
we, we talk a lot about that. Yep. But yet we, uh, I personally see that there is this infiltration um, of, of critical race theory, intersectionality, standpoint hermeneutics, all of these things that at their core are incompatible with the sufficiency of Scripture. You can talk about sufficiency all you want to, but if you're simultaneously allowing room for these other things, uh, then, uh, then sufficiency is undermined. Now, very specifically, one of the ways that I would seek to address that, and I want to be very clear, uh, because, by the way, one of the things I think we're missing in the Southern Baptist Convention, especially those that are to be nominated for elective office, is an unwillingness to just go on the record and tell us what you believe. Right. To do it in a statesmanlike, as winsome a way as possible, but to do it with clarity and precision. Here's what I believe, here's what I would do, and here's why. The, the presidency has very limited power in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but the, 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 uh, the, the powers that the president does have are very real. One of them is the ability to appoint what we call the Committee on Committees, and I won't bore you with all the details, but the, the, the end result of that goes down to the, the nomination of, of men and women who would sit on the various boards of trustees for all of our entities and agencies, including, you were referencing, seminaries. Right. So to have uh, men and women who would sit on these boards that would, that would be seated there by the convention through this process initiated by the president through his appointment of the Committee on Committees, to put men and women on those boards of trustees who share these convictions and who are willing to uh, have the difficult conversations to hold leadership from the, from the classroom to the presidency of the, of the institution, to hold them accountable for the things that are being taught, the videos that are being produced, the chapel sermons that are being uh, hosted, recorded, and put out to the world. Right. Uh, there was a chapel sermon uh, recently that I found very troubling, and part of the response is, well, he didn't come to speak for the seminary. He came to speak for us. Let me just say that as a local church pastor, if I have a guest speaker that comes in and says something that I think is false or misleading or confusing doctrine, we're not putting it on our Facebook page. It's not going to be on our podcast. I I'm not going to repopulate that and publish it out to the world, I'm going to take it down hmm. and probably as soon as possible preach a message that very clearly corrects the record. So uh, the second main thing that I would do, I would just champion the sufficiency of Scripture and to do that in real meaningful, tangible ways. Okay. Okay. The, the third item that's really on my heart is trying to promote greater involvement from what, what I've just called grassroots rank and file Southern Baptists. There are over 47,000 churches in the SBC, and each of those churches get a minimum of two messengers that can go uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention. But, Mike, you'd be hard-pressed at an SBC annual meeting to get more than 9,000 messengers. Right. So you have people who go, and uh, they're, they're very passionate about their issues, but they may not, even on the whole, represent uh, the fuller body of, of what Southern Baptists believe and who Southern Baptists are. I was asked last week, uh, what, are, what are some of the things you think you would do that could invigorate these uh, pastors and messengers from more normative churches across the SBC? And uh, Micah said, I don't mean it to sound self-serving, but you could start by electing me to be the president of the Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention. Right. Uh, I think the SBC needs to be led by a pastor. 
and uh, by a pastor who serves in a more normative type of church. Mm. Now, Emmanuel is not a small church right. uh, by any standard, not even by, certainly not by Southern Baptist standards. Uh, but I have the normal life of a pastor, visit the sick, counsel uh, marriages that are in trouble, do weddings, do funerals. You're here today on our campus. I did the funeral for a, a man right. this morning. So the pastors across the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the life that I live and the ministry that I perform is the ministry they perform. Right. And uh, you'd have to go back over 30 years before you would find a non-mega church pastor serving as president of the SBC. So the, the churches where I preach and really fellowship and minister are churches that usually run 40, 50, 60 in Sunday school. Uh, less than that by the time you get to a Tuesday night revival right. service. So I'd love to see grassroots, rank and file, Southern Baptist more involved in the life of our convention. Mm. One of the things that has come to me, a lot of questions from folks, both within the Southern Baptist Convention and from out, mm -hmm. is that right now in America, we have entered a season where we have our religious liberties yep. um, really more challenged than ever before, even with the Constitution and our system of government, especially through this period of COVID, and then what seems to be an abuse of power within those things. Um, within the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a, an entity that's supposed to be addressing these things, but seems to have been silent almost for um, the past 10 months to a year on many of these issues, as well as other things that have happened within this, this country. Uh, I believe you had a committee that looked into this? A task force. A task force. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, and I'm referring to the ERLC. Yeah. Well, the task force specifically, I'll deal with that part of the question first, uh, was really designed to look at the impact on the cooperative program. And for the non-Southern Baptists, that's the, um, that's the budget. Uh, Southern Baptist churches give voluntarily okay. uh, missions dollars to fund the work of their uh, state and our national convention. And that program is appropriately called the cooperative program. It's not a pew tax. It's, uh, it's voluntarily given. The cooperative program has been in steep and precipitous decline for the last 10 to 12 years to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And there are a lot of factors uh, in that. that it, it, in many ways, can follow general uh, ups and downs in the economy at large. But what we have seen is that as the economy recovers after recessions such as 08, uh, 09, the housing crisis, uh, the cooperative program has not recovered. And uh, we're down, like I said, tens of millions of dollars. And um, one of the major things that, that leaders are hearing across the country is that churches are giving less. Some are giving to other things. Some are escrowing uh, their money. And one of the top reasons that is given is that they are concerned about the direction of the ERLC. And uh, when I was chairing the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, we put a task force together. The, uh, maintenance and promotion of the budget in simplest right. terms is under our purview. So when we're hearing reports that there's this drain on the cooperative program, we wanted to look into that and find out how much of it is anecdotal, secondhand hearsay, how much of it can be documented. Right. And what we discovered through that task force is that there are in fact hundreds of churches across the SBC who are either in some way hundreds, uh, hundreds of churches and millions of dollars are in some form of jeopardy. 
they're either being withheld, uh, threatening to be withheld in a formal way, or some churches that have even said, we're so tired of this direction that's coming out of our national leadership, we're pulling out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. We're not even going to be Southern Baptist anymore. And so the executive committee put a task force together to see how, um, how objective uh, that data uh, could be compiled. And it's a, I think it's a very interesting report, and it shows that we've got some real challenges in that area. But back to the first part of your question. If there's ever been a time yeah. that a conservative evangelical convention of churches, we're not technically a denomination, but if there's ever a time that a group like the Southern Baptist Convention needed a, a leader and leader speaking mm -hmm. into religious liberty, it would be basically the last year in the United States of That's America. Right. COVID has put on graphic display the potential that many believers have to just roll over and right. play dead theologically uh, when it comes to government infringement of their God-given inalienable rights. Right. And um, within the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, we have heard a lot of people who are asking, where is the ERLC on this? It's not to say they've been completely silent on the religious liberty issue, but it has not been anywhere near the level that I think we would look for at really one of the greatest crisis moments right. in the last hundred years. That's right. You literally have to go back to an influenza pandemic in the uh, World War I area. 1918, yeah. Yeah, before you find anything that is sweeping the country and impacting uh, things like COVID-19 has. You see Governor Newsom out in California and uh, uh, issuing these decrees and orders that shut down and prohibit worship. You have stalwart men like John MacArthur who say that they are going to worship, that the government has overstepped its bounds, right? and uh, that the government doesn't have a right to tell Christians that they can't gather together for worship. And you see our national entities and our national leaders are deadly silent right? when one of the most faithful preachers of the gospel of our lifetime, yeah. I would argue for the last couple hundred years, yep. <laughs> is standing as a stalwart uh, on this issue of religious liberty. And um, then more recently, when the California case made its way to the Supreme Court, uh, there was a celebration, you know, that, um, that, uh, that the court overruled some of the restrictions out of California, but they upheld a ban on singing. Right. And this is celebrated by many national leaders, those who feel like, wow, this is great. Um, well, as I read my Bible, I'm commanded to sing. Right. Bible students know that whether you're looking in the Psalms or over in the New Testament, these verbs are often written in, in the imperative. Right. You, you, this is not an option for you to sing. God's people, when we gather together, we are to sing. And the court, no, 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 no governor, no local magistrate has the power to tell me not to do something that God has commanded me to do. Right. I will say if they have the legal authority under a governmental structure, I have a greater and higher authority. As the apostle said, you can decide for yourself. Right. We're going to obey God right. and not man. Well, when these court decisions come down that, that continue to forbid singing by God's people gathered together in worship, 
that's not a court decision that should be celebrated and held up as an example. Mm-hmm. That's a court decision that we should say it's good, uh, but it's not as good as it could be. Th- thank God they did this, but this is still a real issue. Right. And one of the things that I try to teach my people here when I preach on citizenship kinds of issues is to remind them that our rights don't flow from the government. The government can't give you rights. The government can't take your rights because the government has no rights to give. Mm. Our rights come to us from God. And the only rights that really exist are the ones that God has given. Right. And so the government has no right to infringe on those. In fact, our own Constitution, our own Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, which is really the one that's operative and instructive here, does not tell me that I have a right to freedom of assembly mm-hmm. or that, I, that the government is giving me the freedom of worship. The First Amendment is a prohibition against the government mm-hmm. infringing on those rights right. or establishing some, um, some religion, some establishment itself. Right. So the, uh, the, the religious liberty uh, issues in the last 10, 11 going on now 12 months. Mm. This has been a time that we have needed leadership and strong voices like no time in modern history. Right. And uh, many Southern Baptists in particular feel that there has been a great deal of silence. Mm-hmm. And when there has been speaking into it, it has not been with the clarity uh, that we need. And we went through May, June, July of nationwide riots, arsoning, you know, arson, all sorts of things that were happening, and silence again Mm -hmm. on these issues. Literal silence. Correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, North American Mission Board, although actually even some encouragement for some things, I think. Um, But then we we move into January, and whatever the calamitous things that happened on January 6th, and then all of a sudden, now you're hearing again from the ERLC condemning those actions, which they should rightly be condemned, mm-hmm. but yet there was complete silence before. Mm-hmm. And, and how should those in the Southern Baptist Convention actually respond to, to something like that? Well, i tell you how many have responded. We were right on the verge of putting our report out. This is, this is publicly known. This is published in the report. Uh, many of our uh, churches began withholding funds and threatening to withhold funds not because they're upset that there was a condemnation of the January 6th events at the Capitol. I've not talked to anybody that thinks that that was a good thing. There are a lot of opinions about what was actually happening there, but I've not heard from anybody who thinks that that was a good expression of patriotism. Right. The concern was that there was such a loud response on that issue while there was six months of absolute silence as riotous mobs... Violent mobs. I mean, people died. Yes. Mike. Lost their businesses. Lost everything. Businesses burned down. Yeah. Shut down. Cities taken, um, uh, held hostage, really, by some of our citizens. We even had one place out in the Northwest where a group of, of uh, rebellious citizens proclaimed an autonomous zone. Mm-hmm. Capitol Hill autonomous zone. W- within yeah. the sovereign borders and boundaries of the United States of America. Right. And not so much as a tweet. Right. And uh, one aspect of this, and I realize it's just one part of this discussion, 
But one aspect of it goes back to the influence of critical race theory and intersectionality, where right and wrong are determined by your identity, mm -hmm. not based on your behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're this person or representing this group or this ideology, you're wrong and should be condemned. Right. But if you're in another group representing a different ideology, right. there's nothing for us to condemn. Right. What we should condemn is are those who are criticizing you because they don't understand how oppressed you are by those who have power and privilege. And uh, I think the, the, the silence on this issue with the violent protests that went literally from coast to coast for six months, the silence on that is in part impacted by this intersectional approach that we have where guilt and innocence, right and wrong, is determined by identity not by a person's actual behavior. Changing systems, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you go about instituting systemic change that actually reflects what you're actually accusing the others of doing, now you are going to do yourself. Yeah. Pastor Mike Stone, thank you. We have challenges ahead, both in the Southern Baptist Convention and in our nation and in our world. And uh, we'll be praying for you coming you. up and looking forward to the days ahead. It's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you.